Welcome back to The Courier Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's Editorial Director. This week, we're with Sam Valenti from the New York-based record label Ghostly International to talk about how musicians are adapting to the crazy new times and whether or not New York has a creative future. A decade ago, the eyewear industry got a big shock when new brands launched that let you order frames online and get them delivered straight to your door to try on, cutting out the middleman. But it seems like it's been a really long time since there's been another big innovation. I catch up with the founder of eyewear brand Ace and Tate to find out if that's true. But first, you guys all know Courier columnist Fleur Emery. She's founded companies in the food and drink space, she's been a coach for new founders, and now she's launched a new company called Real Work. It's what Fleur is calling an online co-working space for women. I caught up with her to find out more. So I pivoted my career last year. Pivoted is a bit of a um, glorified... <laughs> version of what it was, I'd quit starting food companies and I was in an exploratory period sort of on Instagram and doing bits and bobs. And I was doing loads of speaking gigs and I really liked it. And I was doing the stuff at the wing, business events at the wing, and it was so swish. Everyone kept taking my photograph and, you know, the money was <laughs> decent. And I was like, okay, well, this is a thing, you know, this is great. All of that was going great guns. And then when COVID hit, everything got cancelled. And critically, and I've seen this with a lot of my other entrepreneur friends, freelancers and small business owners, there was no cancellation fee because at the beginning, people were behaving like it was just, you know, in a few weeks, we'll be back up and running. And so people were postponing. And of course, those businesses have since either gone bust or sort of made other plans. And so none of that work, you can't really chase that money. I had a few grand's worth of work booked that just went to nothing. And I had a four-year-old at home. Yeah, I mean, I was in the hole. That's for sure. Yeah, you were, I mean, you did some pretty emotional, honest kind of Instagram posts where you're like, I don't know what to do anymore. I did. I mean, I had one day when I did a thing when I put together a webinar on how to kind of consolidate your business in a crisis, right? Some crisis management. And um, I sold a heap of tickets to people I didn't know on Eventbrite. So I maybe had like 80 signups, people paying like 50 quid each. The thing switched on. (laughs) There was this bank of faces, mostly men, looking out at me. And my kid caught sight of it. And she just literally stood up, pointed at it, made intense eye contact and said, turn that off. And I realized that, yeah, having a load of people I didn't know staring into the house and me teaching them a very dry, serious subject, you know, this isn't going to, not going to fly. It's just a, it's a hard no from her. It was pivot central, basically. So yeah, I went on Instagram and I was literally like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no potential source of income. And that's why I'm at. If you're there, put your hand up. And a lot of people put their hand up and they said, I don't, you know, particularly solo parents like me. So I had a couple of hours a day where she could watch Scooby-Doo. She can concentrate for about an hour and a half on a film. That was how much time I had to work. And then a couple of hours after she was asleep. So started trying a few different things, made some online courses, sold a few of them. But selling online courses per se, just in itself, requires quite a lot of sort of intense, punchy Instagram selling, which wasn't really my bag. Yeah, I know, as you kind of noted after the fact that it's more marketing than actual the content itself of the courses. 
you know, some people can find a way that that works. And it wasn't easy, but I made enough to keep the lights on kind of thing. And the content was good. You know, I was getting great feedback for the courses. So there was kind of that. Then literally I had, I was thinking about the wing and the wing, the women's members club that I was part of because of some problems that were happening in America that were separate to the pandemic, some cultural problems with their working culture the business over here was was closed so I started thinking about that and I started thinking about memberships I've actually had a long history with sort of a fascination with members clubs from an early age I definitely was quite curious about any place that said that I wasn't allowed in I definitely wanted to get in and find out why you know there's a lot of stuff at the moment in the about the Garrick club you know that men's club that people there's a woman taking them to court saying that women should be allowed in it because all the men in there are making decisions that affects all of us and women are being excluded I'm definitely sort of fascinated with the idea of being kept out and as soon as I was old enough to come to London I sought out a lot of those kind of clubs I'd heard about places like um the Colony Rooms in Soho, which is loads of crazy artists, the Grout Show, you know, all those kind of places. Soho has early days of Shoreditch House. I used to work out of there. And I've enjoyed them over the years. I've really loved the exclusivity. And then suddenly, of course, exclusivity is something which is considered bad. And I kind of agree with that. So I'd sort of been thinking about other people's memberships and how it applied to the work I did. And so literally on a Saturday night, I thought, well, why not have some kind of a membership whereby I can work with people in a group for a lower fee than my one-to-one. Let's be honest, all my one-to-one work had all disappeared as well because it's non-essential for people. And so that had dropped off. And yeah, you know, food businesses, particularly who I coach, the food industry was kind of a standstill for a while. Or well, not a standstill, but check, the food development was at a standstill, you know, while everyone was sort of concentrating on just a more everyday kind of offer. I literally had the idea on a Saturday in bed at about one o'clock. Thought, hmm, oh, that might work. Asked a question on Instagram. I just went on Instagram. I said, listen, maybe we could do this kind of membership thing. I don't know exactly what it'll be like. Let's make it a pilot. Let's co-create it. Let's work together. I think it'll have my online courses, which you can watch for free. There's about a thousand quids worth of online courses I've got now. We'll do a bit of Zoom teaching, if you like. <laughs> bit of this, bit of that, and a Slack group. And um, you can have me in your pocket and I'll answer your questions. And I put a button up requiring them to commit for a three-month term for 295 quid. And I made just shy of 15 grand in 24 hours. <laughs> and bearing in mind my earnings, I mean, that was more than... That's a lot of money for any way you look at it. I never earned that much in one, nowhere near. But then you had to actually follow up and, and do what you said you were going to do. I know, and that was the funny thing because, you know, the money was in and the euphoria of selling was just fantastic. I was just like, holy mackerel. I've absolutely, you know, struck gold. Marvellous. Yeah, there was this responsibility. But actually, to be honest, Sunny, there's a quite a few things that I did right in this situation. Some of them accidentally and some just because I've been around the block and I've, you know, been in the game a long time. And one of them was that the offer I made them wasn't all slick and polished. I presented them something as a pilot, sort of in beta, unbranded. It hasn't got a name. I said to them on day one, don't come in, lurk. And then, you know, after two months, go on Twitter and say, I joined Fleur Emery's membership. It was shit. It's just like, this is all of us. 
I'm responding, I'm listening, tell me what you want, and I'm going to make that happen. Let's work together and help you set goals and meet goals. I'm about action. This is about action. There's no memes. There's no unicorns. There's no like mottos, you know, you've got, it's not that. It's about solving problems and like making businesses that make money. So the, the real use case is that somebody goes onto this community platform with a question they want answered and somebody else who's a member will pipe up and say, hey, I could help answer that. Somebody who you've paid as an expert could help answer that. That's what's really interesting, Danny, because I also underestimated the opportunity, my own opportunity, because I went on. So I got 45 people or whatever signed up in, in the room. And I assumed that my energy expenditure would be quite high because it would be like me teaching 45 people. But actually, because it's quite expensive to join, the caliber of the people who are in the room and the fact that they've paid quite a bit of money to be there meant that they really showed up, you know. And I think that there's a lot of memberships where people kind of come in, but they don't log on and they, but everyone showed up and everyone started sharing their experience and helping each other. And so actually I'm one voice in that, but there's people in the room who are more experienced in certain areas. So it's not like me being the guru. If anything, I'm the energy guru because of like my positivity and my, you know, optimism and my funny stories. I'm kind of like the buoyancy aid for all of these people. But actually, a lot of the technical advice is cross sharing and I'm learning and I'm very happy to step out of the way and also be the recipient of that information. And that's when I suddenly thought, literally, you know, that Jaws moment, we're going to need a bigger boat. This is really scalable and really exciting. Because, you know, courier readers who have followed you as a columnist for a few years now, they would have known the, you know, the Fleur Emery as food and drink entrepreneur, the Fleur Emery as kind of the in-between phase where you did, you know, coaching and one-on-ones and stuff. And now this is kind of a completely new business that you've just launched. And do you see this as like the winning one or do you not even need a winning one? This is just what you might do for a few years. Part of me, of course, thinks, wow, the flow of this project, the ease with which it's kind of come into being, you know, that's the definition of a great opportunity, isn't it? It really plays to my strengths. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy showing up for these people. I communicate at the speed of light. I know loads of people that I can bring to the So it feels like not working, right? It feels like I can't believe I'm getting away with it. I feel like the luckiest person in the world. However, life is about timing, isn't it? And had I attempted to deliver a project like this 15, 20 years ago, when I had no experience, no one would have signed up. So they're signing up to the fact that I've just got reams and reams and gallons of stories in the bag of what I did, what happened. This is what happened to me. I didn't do it right. I'm going to bring this person in who did do it right. So it's kind of like those 15 years when I was out in industry, starting businesses, succeeding, failing, succeeding, failing. That feeds in to this, really. It hasn't come out of nowhere. Because at first I did feel like, oh, man, you know, what have I been doing all this time? What a donkey I was to be working so hard for no money. All of that stuff is what I can bring to the situation. That was Fleur Emery on her new project called Real Work. So as promised earlier on, I've been thinking a lot about the eyewear space recently, probably because I'm on the hunt for some new frames. I was thinking about way back when Warby Parker launched and how it changed the game and what's been going on in the sector since then in terms of innovation. 
Mark DeLong is the founder and CEO of Ace and Tate, a Dutch eyewear brand with dozens of brick and mortar stores across Europe. I caught up with him a bit earlier to find out what eyewear has been up to lately. You guys launched in 2013. I remember back in like 2010-ish when Warby Parker launched, you know, eyewear was really a hot industry to be in. The model was changing. The middlemen were being cut out. You could try and things at home. You guys launched with that similar model of cut out the middleman. Now here we are a decade later. What are the big innovations in the eyewear industry a decade later? Is it pretty much the same kind of direct-to-consumer, try-and-at-home style, or are there simmering you know, trends happening in the background that most people aren't aware of? Well, it's something that we've been working on behind the scenes for a long time, is trying to minimize our footprint of the company, I think, as every company is doing these days. But that is something you don't see a lot in the IRA industry, which has always surprised me. What do you mean when you say reduce your footprint? Uh, well, it could be on the product side of things, uh, looking into new materials, looking into new production methods, but also, for instance, for us, we've been looking into that, but also how do we minimize our retail footprint? And that's one of the projects that we've been spending a lot of time on during lockdown. We always had this idea that we should and would approach our stores differently. And now we've been working on a more responsible retail concept which essentially is something that's more modular, that's made from more standardized materials, that tries to limit working on the building as much as possible, so work what you have. I would say in general, one of the big innovations in the IRA industry is customer focus. And I know that doesn't sound as an innovation, but the experience of buying eyewear is, from where I'm sitting, still sucks the majority of the time. It's about as fun as going to the dentist. And it is, I think, actually a very cool purchase. And thinking from the customer is something I believe is missing in our industry. And thinking from the customer is not saying you'll get three pairs for the price of one. Thinking from the customer is to make sure that their customer journey, pre-sale, during the sale, and after the sale, is as frictionless, as fun, and as catered to them as possible. That's interesting. So the big innovations are improving what's already there, making the experience a bit better. But you don't see like, you know, when you and a few of your competitors launched, you know, a decade ago, almost a decade ago, that was like a kind of a holy shit kind of sea change moment in the eyewear industry where it went from like Luxottica owning everything and you just being forced to buy 400 pound eyewear to, right, we're going to send it to your house. You're going to try it on, send it back to us, etc. You don't see like a big innovation like that heading our way. I mean, you know, AR, VR, something like that, where you think it'll actually stick and change the game. Well, I would say there are two things happening that are making it easier and easier to sell eyewear without the need for the customer to be at a physical location. One is the innovations or the progress in doing eye tests online, which is still very early days, but I believe that that will happen eventually. And big steps are being made. We're testing this as well. So yes, that will happen. That is very IRA specific. I think the other element to this is uh, trying on anything. And that also goes for eyewear. Now with AR, you're able to make pretty specific measurements of someone's face. And you can scale virtually a pair of glasses to their face so they could very easily see how it would actually look in real life. That is obviously something that helps purchasing eyewear without needing to be in a store. But is that eyewear industry specific? Not really. Will it change our industry over time? Yes, definitely. What I always found funny is that all of these direct-to-consumer brands launched 
with the promise that they were direct to consumer. They wouldn't have a physical retail presence in, you know, the past five years. I mean, everybody from away suitcases to you guys, I guess, to, you know, to your competitors have progressively been opening up stores. You know, mattress companies now have stores. Direct to consumer furniture brands have stores. How do you judge getting that mix right between online and offline? Are the offline just browsing vehicles where people go and try something on and then they end up going back to their laptop and ordering it from their laptop? Well, for us, direct-to-consumer and retail have never been mutually exclusive. For me, it's always been I, as a business, want to be in charge of the full experience that the customer has. And that can be either online, offline, or a mix between the two. For me, it's about cutting out that middleman. And our stores are fully owned by us. So we're still able to be direct-to-consumer with an offline footprint. And very early on, we realized that a pair of glasses is something where ideally at some point in the customer journey, you would have a physical touch point. And that is probably the eye test, but it could also be adjusting your eyewear. And I don't really care, to be honest, where someone transacts. I want our customer to have the best experience they could possibly have so they come back and tell their friends. Is there anything in your industry that's been completely screwed fundamentally by COVID, you know, supply chains, for instance, you know, do you get your acetate from some factory in Italy that's gone under or something like that? Well, this was one of the main concerns when we started to become real, I think, COVID. This is one of our main concerns keeping us up at night, but it hasn't been that bad, to be honest. I would have expected way worse. Obviously, everything has slowed down. We have had, I think, deliveries coming in late or that kind of stuff happening, but I wouldn't say it has been catastrophic for us. So far, knock on wood. And finally today, the pandemic's been destructive to pretty much every industry. But as any listener to the show knows, it's also uncovered tons of opportunities. So what's going on in the music industry? How are musicians and music businesses adapting? Earlier today, I heard from a good friend of mine, Sam Valenti, who runs the independent record label Ghostly International. Sam founded the company way back in 1999, and it's still very much going very strong. I wanted to hear what it's been like running Ghostly when music tours are canceled and musician revenues are in the crossfire. Here's Sam. I think for everybody, it hits in different ways. And I think it maybe is like, it's probably personality based to some degree beyond just facts and figures. It's like, how do you process bad information? I think I am. Maybe you have to ask the team. I think I'm okay at dealing with a big scary monster in the closet type thing. You kind of switch your brain into like almost like a fight mode and like, okay, what do we do to like stop loss or like tourniquet fear? So I think we jumped quickly into action, understanding that you can't really control the future. And I think for music, because like a lot of industries, music works on a year away, six months away, nine months away. Like you're always kind of planning the next thing and it has to be with the lens of what are we going to be doing in January? Can we tour then? And so I think it's the challenge, especially for artists right now, is how do you plan your life and your promote your the usual promotion cycle of like record a record, put it out, do a three month lead campaign into that with some singles and interviews and stuff, and then tour it. You know, artists we work with got their tours clipped in half while they were on the road, and then some who had records coming out who love to tour, we're not going to be able to do that, at least for the foreseeable future. Instead of saying, okay, let's delay it to March of 2021 or April or whatever, our advice, at least to artists and managers, was let's keep the music coming out and flowing because 
obviously it's their choice. We never demand a release date, but it, our, our attitude was a the social good of music. Obviously, people need it. It's good for fans to have things to look forward to and enjoy. Music is a pretty lightweight, relatively inexpensive compared to other homemade luxuries or small luxuries. You know, listening to a song on YouTube or buying a vinyl or an LP from Bandcamp is actually. I think still a very affordable thing. And we were like, okay, let's think about the fan, but also the, for the artist. Like there's sort of, yes, there's writer's block and trying to tell artists to make music during quarantine. You know, we encouraged it, but we didn't make it a thing because we wanted artists to sort of express what they were feeling or not. And that's totally up to them. But as far as stuff that was already in the pipeline, we were like, okay, how do we get this out and not let the winds blow it away because we don't know what's going to happen. So. Short answer, we've just tried to keep our promise to the artists and our promise to the fans of these artists that they're able to work and earn money and do performances. And, you know, that's our North Star is how to help artists um, make more money and make their fans happy. Yeah. And, you know, on this show for the past, God, I guess it's half a year now, we've talked to founders and small business owners about just how their industries will be impacted in the long term by COVID. We've oddly actually kind of missed out on the on the music industry, but as an outsider, I imagine the vast majority of income for a musician comes from touring, right? It depends on the artist. You know, obviously some artists have more of a studio mindset or they work on licensing or composition for films or games. There's all sorts of artists that we work with, but some are the classic, you know, get in the car and drive. And that's awesome. And that's also not just good for financial gain, but also like their cultural relationship to their fans and also like fans appreciating or discovering them. So yeah, it's a huge loss. And as much as I love live streaming, the fun of being able to sort of pop into a show without like leaving your couch, a lot of the intimacy is lost. So I don't think you can ever really replicate that financially or otherwise. So I think you're just trying to sort of, I think we try to match make too. I think getting artists to talk to other artists that we like everybody's home no one has the excuse of being like hey i'm on the road or touring then it's like so we were able to try to help get our artists and other artists co-writing virtually or sharing songs or remixing yeah i saw you posted on the ghostly instagram about ghostly knowledge share is that what you're talking about that's one aspect of it yeah i mean ghostly knowledge share was a irl activity that we just took online the idea of ghostly knowledge share you know we're trying to think about what our cultural value is because we're not a huge company that that can just underwrite performances all the time or events so it's like well the biggest cultural value we think as a company is that we work with really motivated intelligent artists and a lot of them want to share their knowledge and they want to share their experience and give you know previous younger versions of themselves a leg up you know we were doing that we've done four of them new york and la and detroit ann arbor and then we were like well this obviously can work as a live stream so we've done two so far and one's coming up and the response has been great and it's actually been one of the most sort of socially enjoyable things that we've been involved in or at least personally that i've been involved in since this year unfolded and you know when you're looking at the music industry just through the lens of covid i mean how are musicians and businesses adapting i mean if you look at the restaurant industry for instance and we've we've talked to a lot of chefs and restaurant owners you know they're doing meals to your home in a box where you cook it at home or they turn themselves into a temporary grocery store for the last you know half year are musicians making any similar pivots that might actually last a long time and might even be a net positive 10 years from now 
It's a great question. I think the sort of intimacy and like personality that has come through from certain artists and people becoming more comfortable with using the way that companies have become more comfortable using video conferencing. I think artists some have enjoyed it. I don't think you're again, I don't think you're going to replicate live, but I think the exposition of process, a lot of artists are just saying, "Hey, I'm going to be on making music on Twitch, you know, come watch or I'm going to be playing a video game and come hang out." So I think the virtual hang, which I think there was, you know, sites like Turntable FM really had it right as far as the idea of music's a communal thing to hang around with. So both for fans and artists there is a need that has been shown for a virtual hang, right? And so whether it's educational or just watching a DJ play songs or in the case of Ghostly Knowledge Share, to have art professionals share their work with up-and-coming artists, the desire to connect alone or together is not going anywhere. And I think art tends to evolve faster under constraints be they financial or otherwise. And we watched a lot of artists we work with make leaps. Like, you know, maybe they never would have done a live stream before, but their version of it's like, well, I'm going to set up a camera in my backyard and I'm going to play tracks and just let people kind of comment and hang out. And I think that's something that this constraint never would have um, come up. It's not going to look like a seismic leap, but it's going to be a lot of small things that add up. And I think the comfort with for a lot of artists with the technology and not looking at it as sort of self-promotion or being shameless, but using it as a tool to connect is a positive. There's like a lot less of a fear around going live, but ultimately artists want to portray themselves or connect in a way that's meaningful. So I think there's going to be some really cool stories that come out of this era. And what about, you know, I wanted to just get your take on this. You know, you're in New York, you're still downtown, right? No, I actually am currently uptown, but the office which I go to a few times a week, is still downtown. And, you know, if you read, there's so many think pieces out there, right, on, like, the death of New York. Everybody's fleeing for the Catskills, going to, you know, the Hamptons, or going back home to their parents' house in Wisconsin or whatever. And it's like, there's so many just, like, eulogies of New York City right now. I mean, what's your take on all of that? A lot of people just say it's complete nonsense, and New York just is as it always is. I'm not really a big, like, fortune teller. I don't know what's going to happen, and I... I just think it's a personal thing, right? Like if you have a family and you were planning to move and this was the kick in the butt that did it and good for you, you know, hopefully it was good. I think more importantly to me, it's like the barrier to entry to New York has gotten higher and higher to live here. And I think the hope is, and I was talking to a friend yesterday who in his research, rents have fallen, especially in Manhattan, where it's been prohibitive for a long time. The idea of who's coming next is always more important because, you know, New York thrives on youth and it thrives on hunger and like passion. And so whether or not, you know, the 50 something VC or professional is leaving is not really what New York is about. It's about like who's the teen or 20 or whatever person coming with stars in their eyes and big hopes and that that's going to drive it. So I think if you're thinking with that hat on, New York will at some point have another creative surge. I don't know what that means for all the empty high rises, but if you judge New York and cultural capital, which I tend to, you know, then you'll see another spike in due time. Do you think it still, you know, deserves its place as like, 
what a 21-year-old graduating university in Minnesota, you know, they go to New York to whatever the cliches are, you know, concrete jungle, big dreams. Is that New York now or is it LA or is it Detroit or is it, you know, Berlin? What's cool is I think all the answer is like all of the above, right? Because I like the fact that sort of, you know, video conferencing maybe has made the cities less crucial to building a network or to being able to work. Like that's a good thing. I think anytime you can eliminate barriers to entry it's a positive but i think for yeah raw magnetism all the cities that you mentioned new york detroit la london where have you have an energy that is hard to define the people who go there pick up on that and so i think what type of lifestyle you want what type of affordability you need like i think that it's cool that more cities are on the level and it's not so coastal anymore but yeah i mean i think new york always will have its charm, but it may be plus or minus 10% or 20% to certain individuals, but that's okay too. You know, it's supposed to be an evolving city. I think all the cities should be evolving. And if it's not, then if we were happy, I don't think anybody who lived in New York 12 months ago would say that the city is perfect or that let's just freeze time as it is right now, right? Like between political changes and bike lanes and like affordability and whatnot, like there's a lot of issues that New York had to come to grips with, as well as LA, as well as other cities. So I'm not like a civic planner type person, but I was thinking just culturally, I think you're going to find another wave of talent that emerges from all of these cities. Yeah, everybody always thinks that, you know, the previous generation had it best and those are the golden years. But if you ask the people at the time, they would say it was, you know, 30 years before them, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think New York also is a victim of its own nostalgia, right? It's of all sorts of eras and styles. So it would be cool to have a new era that people go, wow, remember the, the crazy 20s when like things got really interesting? Like that should be more interesting than like, yeah, as much as I fetishize the 80s and 90s and you know all the good stuff that came with it, if we don't have some new stories, then it's not gonna be terribly interesting. And that's it this week. As always, if you've got any questions or comments, you can reach me at daniel at couriermedia.co. The Curry Weekly is back again next Friday. Thanks for tuning in.